Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, and welcome back to another episode of Life, Death, and the Law. I'm attorney Adam Hanson, and I'm in the studio today with the one and only Mr. Sean Garner. He's my partner in crime here at the law firm, and then we've got Lana... Lana Lana works with us in the law firm as well. What's unique about Lana is that she uh, is our resident Russian-born Russian citizen, citizen, and then she immigrated to the United States. But she's got an interesting story, and we love having her perspective on things. She the the topic of today is we're going to talk about uh, really communism in general, and that was because of. Sean bringing this up, the Marxism, communism, socialism, all these isms we're going to talk about today. And uh, the question becomes, uh, you know, is it better for us to cede some of our freedoms to our sovereign government in exchange for ease of, I would say, or argue, uh, life amenities such as health care? Before we came on the air, we were in a heated debate. I wouldn't say heated. We weren't yelling at each other, but everybody had an opinion as to whether or not health care should be part of our benefit package as being a citizen of the United States or not. Do I need to go out and work to, um, in order to find my own insurance carrier and hopefully I can afford to pay those premiums or should I just rely on the government to provide that for me? Or pay privately altogether. Yeah. And so all these issues are encompassed by whether or not we are ceding some of our freedoms to our government sovereign, whether you're in the United States, you're in Venezuela, you're in uh, Russia, you're in, um, you're in Western Europe, Europe countries such as Spain, Portugal, or, or the United Kingdom. So every government has a little bit of a different take on these things, and we are used to in the United States our constitutional rights, and uh, that's very ingrained in us because of our constitution, which is unique in, in the whole wide world, other governments have tried to emulate that constitution, have, have not been successful as much or to the level of the United States of America. You can argue all day long that there are, are issues in our history that uh, I would argue we overcame and we continue to overcome those. And all of that is because of our unique constitution, which I believe to be God-given. But uh, I don't know what your opinion is, and you can have your own opinion, but that's my opinion, is that it wasn't a hap- happenstance. I just got back from Mount Vernon. Um, my, my wife and I and my two daughters went back to uh, Mount Vernon just a couple weeks ago, and um, it was just neat to see George Washington's property there and the way that he, he contemplated um, his service to our country and how he didn't want to be involved, and how others around him pushed him into this kind of thing of being a president of the United States. And then even after his second term, which he didn't want to do in the first place, um, everybody was clamoring for him to be the United States king. And he walked away, like we talked about in the last program. He walked into that constitutional hall, a president of the United States, and walked out a farmer in Virginia. So, Lana, we're going to go to you uh, because you have unique perspectives on this. And, and Sean's going to probably pipe in here because you're the one that brought this topic up when we were talking about it earlier before the show was this idea of communism. And I, I, maybe it's better if we start with kind of a definition, Sean. What would you, how would you define communism? Okay, so this is how I would define it. I would define communism that the state owns all the property. There is no property owned by the individual, so no means of production owned by individual. And uh, 
to each given to the state according to his ability and to each given back to them according to their need. And that's the basic premise of communism. And on its surface, a very shallow surface, but on its surface, it sounds like a very moral way to run a society because we're treating everybody equally, we're sharing, and we're living in what should be a utopian society. Capitalism, on the other hand, is to each according to his ability, and he can climb the ladder of success as high as he possibly can or without any impediment from the government. And if he decides not to climb the ladder, then he may starve to death. So that those are really the major differences between the two. And when you look at the morality just based on theory of the two, communism, socialism, seems like the more moral approach. But we all know that outcome is more important than intent. We can intend to do good but cause harm, and the outcome is going to trump the intent every time. And we've been able to experience the intent of the implication of communism and socialism time and time again. And what we've found is there's been mass suffering and destruction that have been endured by the populations for which that uh, government regime was imposed. For example, and and this is the reason why this came up in the first place, because um, right now, if you ask, anybody in high school, college, even elementary, what a preferred pronoun was, they would be able to explain it to you and in the, in the context that you need to be aware of it. And a year ago, two years ago, if somebody asked me what a preferred pronoun was, I, I'd, be, I'd ask them to repeat the question. We're talking about English work, right? We're English class. Yeah. Pronoun, yeah. Right? We're talking about classes here in America. So everybody knows what preferred pronouns are. And I think that they are silly, quite honestly. And, and that's my opinion, and you can hate me and cancel me if you want. But I think they're quite silly. If you want to dress up as a woman and you go out and you present yourself as a woman and people call you a she, so be it. I, I have no problem with that. If someone presented themselves to me as a she, I would call them a she. But if, if, they, if they present themselves and, and, and it looks like somebody who is a male or non-binary and I get confused... And, and, and they help clarify that to me, then fine. I, I'll, I'll use their pronoun if, if it fits in with my concept of reality. What I have a hard time with is when I perceive reality, and I understand reality not to be relative, that it's to be absolute, that I, I can perceive it around me and then I can act within that. But they say, no, I look like a man. I have the anatomy of a man. I have an XY chromosome. But you're going to call me a she. I'm like, whoa. Then what happens is my brain short circuits a little bit, and, and it feels wrong to me. And so that, that everybody knows. And, and there's a lot of people out there that think that I'm a bigot and that I should be canceled and that I should be put in a straight jacket and thrown away in a dark pit somewhere. And that's what I want to bring up here because 36% of those same people that are so educated about preferred pronouns and how we should act about them, not just to be tolerant about them, but that they should be embraced and celebrated, that those same people also have, um, many of them, a favorable view on communism. 
And I want to talk a little bit about the facts of communism, and that's why we have a special guest here, um, Lana. Which is, well, I was going to bring up a point here. So as you were speaking about that, my question for Lana is, when you have your discussions with your parents that are still living in Russia, I asked you, man, or I made the comment, we should have your mom and dad on the show. You know, we should call them. I don't know what time it is there, but we should have them on the show. And you said, well, they only speak Russian, so that wouldn't really work. You'd have to translate for us. But having said that, um, as Sean was talking, my, my first thought was, how many conversations do you have with your parents who live in Russia about gender affirmation and proper pronoun use? To be honest, I've never spoken with my parents about uh, on this topic at all. Uh, I don't think that's even a thing uh, recognized in Russia. Um, exactly. Russia has just barely started accepting homosexualism, so they're very, very far from accepting. What about China? Do you think they're probably on par with what, what Russia is in the sense of gender affirmation and these pronoun I think they're even Choices. stricter than Russia. There are some freedoms in Russia. There's some, you know, freedom room to operate. I don't think that is the case in China at all. Yeah, so, and North Korea. And North Korea. And many, or if not all, of the communist regimes. And that's that because one of the tenets remaining. of communism and Marxism in general is that you have to abandon the individual. You have to abandon religion. You have to mm -hmm. abandon all of the s separate distinctions that uh, make you individual and embrace the community. And so religion is a big thing. For me, my purpose in life is to return and live with God. So I act in accordance with what I think God's will, at least I attempt to act, what I think God's will is. And the greatest example to me was Christ, who gave over all of his um, agency to God, his Father. He says, I'm going to do my Father's will. And that is, is, is my purpose here in life, to follow what God has intended for me to do because I believe that he is a loving, caring God and he wants the best for me. So if you strip that away from me, you strip my identity and my purpose of life. My purpose of life is not just to subsist. It's not just to eat so I can work, so I can earn food, give it back to the community so we can all eat again and then work some more. That, that, that to me, is being a zombie. And um, the, the statistics, when I first heard that uh, statistically 36% of millennials have a favorable view of communism, it blew my mind. This is where our education system becomes dangerous. Not just like, oh, okay, it's not accomplishing um, the full extent of, of the benefits that we could be providing. It's, it's super dangerous. For example, to have a favorable view on a communist regime is to ignore the facts. Let, let's just go talk about facts here for a second. Vietnam. We all know that there's the war in the Vietnam in the 60s, and uh, 50,000 American soldiers died there. A million Vietnamese were killed there by the communist regime for not adopting and accepting the communist way of life. In Eastern Europe, there was another million people that were killed. Now, these are citizens. These are not combatants. These are not soldiers. These are citizens. And for every million that are killed, there's another 10 million that suffer because the million that are are killed are the ones that are standing up. Generally, the, the providers of the families are standing up against the regime. And so they're being killed, and their families are suffering and starving to death. 
In Ethiopia, there was 1.5 million. In North Korea, 2 million. Now, according to these numbers, these are all very, very um, conservative numbers coming out of a research done by Yale University. Cambodia, 2 million. Soviet Union, between 20 and 40 million. The fact that we have a fudge factor of 20 million lives shows how evil that that um, governmental regime is. China, between 60 and 80 million people. And why? Why did they have to starve to death? And, and mostly a lot, a lot of it was starvation. Some of it was direct political persecution and, and torture. But a lot of these people starved because of Soviet, or because China was providing the Soviet Union with food in exchange for weapons because it wanted to become a military power. And with a communist regime, you've got all the power concentrated at the top, so the people really have no voice, even though they call it the People's Party. And that, to me, is, is very distressing that 36% of the millennials think that regimes that had that type of outcome with their government implementation is good. Now, we need, we have a moral obligation to learn about the Holocaust, where six million Jews were slaughtered. We have a moral obligation to learn about the history of our nation and the sin of slavery in order to avoid that and to appreciate how good freedom is. And to ignore those things, I think every American would acknowledge, would be to be immoral if those things were not taught in school. This is just as immoral, if not more so, because more people have died. More people have been persecuted under this. And it's been a worldview that has not just existed as an alternative government, but it's been a government that has attempted to supersede and expand its boundaries over all the world. And we are now, in the United States, looking at it in a favorable light. So we've we got to take a break. We'll come back. This is Life, Death, and the Law. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit YumaEstatePlanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. We're talking about the importance of education in general and uh, the difference between what um, an idea is as far as being good or bad and moral and immoral 
and the actuality of the practice of an idea and what is more important. And most of us would believe that the actual outcome is more important. If somebody came to me and said, hey, can you provide ABC for me, legal planning or whatever? And I said, yes. And I had the idea of doing it. But in the end, I decided to go to the beach and take their money and spend it on a vacation. Well, then that idea didn't get them anything and and made me a thief. So what we have to look at is what actually comes out of these ideas. Communism is the idea that everybody shares and shares alike. Everybody contributes to society according to their ability. But the reality of it is that the greatest evil of human history has been perpetuated by communism. So, um, Adam, you, you had some statistics that you saw on your own about how many people died from the Nazi movement and German aggressions during World War II. So what were some of those numbers that you came up with? Well, so when I did the research, it was a European study that I saw, and, and it wasn't a definitive number. I don't Obviously, we can't count every life that was lost during World War II, specifically from Nazism. But in our common dialogue, even today, when somebody is doing something to the extent that it's uh, reprehensible, you'll often hear, well, you're, you're being a Nazi, or you, we hear that term thrown around a lot because yeah. it has an attribution to a horrible and horrific event in our world history. And they have no protection. If, you, if you're called a Nazi, nobody says, oh, oh, oh you're, you're offending the Nazis. And so yeah. <laughs> the uh, Nazis, they're at the so. bottom of the barrel as far as political classes go. So that ideology was responsible for the the uh, eradication of millions of lives and, and and on a scale to compare it to communism that was my that was my um, curiosity how does the holocaust and that ideology compare to actual communism as a broader ideology and communism has accounted for more than a billion a billion a billion uh, lives uh, being lost, and it, it accounts for even more daily because it's it's a an ideology that continues to exist in in countries such as China, Russia, Venezuela, and so these ideas continue to be responsible for the deaths of thousands of people daily. You know, and so how does that compare to what happened during the Holocaust? When I did my research, the numbers that I found were something like um, when you do the math, basically what the what the study would was was how many in the Jewish population existed theoretically before World War II and then how many after. And and not just them, but gypsies like in northern Spain and southern France. So there were other groups that were were targeted by the Nazi uh, ideology. And so they started with this number and then they ended with this number. And so that ended up being about um, four to six million, something like that. And so I just did the math, you know. Well, how many how many lives is that in comparison to communism and it's 200 communism accounts for 250 times the amount of lives lost uh than, than the holocaust or that that period of our history our world history which is i mean if we had a 250 percent increase in our revenues here in the firm man we i wouldn't be here i'd be on a beach in panama but uh that that is exponential and why aren't we talking about that in our educational system and Lana, you had mentioned before, I asked you, well, 
coming into this, are you versed in communism, like principles of Marxism? You said, yeah, we had to study that. That was what, part of what we studied in school growing up. And your traditional school route, tell us about that. I mean, it's, it's kind of similar to what we do here in the United States. You have high school, mm-hmm. you have uh, college, Elementary, you have middle school, uh, yeah. high school. Uh, these are all parts of the secondary education. And then uh, we go on to the higher education. And when you went college, through school, university. you lived in the Soviet Union. Correct. Yes. So, I started. so that it, it's so great to have firsthand knowledge of somebody that actually lived through that process and, and, and the transformation of the country. Now, I don't think that anybody would say that Russia has fully revolutionized out of communism. They're still very much a left-leaning government. But um, yeah. under the Soviet Union, uh, tell us how life was compared to how it is now and your ability, even under um, somewhat oppressive taxes in the United States, the quality of life that you experience? Uh, Well, I was going to school. I started elementary school um, when the communism kind of was nearing its uh, last legs in the beginning, in early 80s. Uh, and we all know it fell in the early 90s, but I still had a good 10 years to experience that. Um, well, we had the, the communism. Actually, Russia is my mom, who is a retired history teacher, corrected me. Russia was not a communist country. It was a socialist country. Apparently, there's a big difference. And, and then she said that she didn't want to speak on this topic anymore because she's a patriot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's today when I asked her if, if she wanted to be interviewed. So you can see that uh, the older generation is still very much brainwashed and they were raised, they were born and raised, they you know, they breathed socialism. Mind you, because my mom... Because the first was, and foremost loyalty is to the party. Absolutely. And my mom was never even a, a member of the party. She refused to join the party when she was young. When she it was time for her to join the party, is like 19, 20 years old. Uh, so you, you can call her a dissident, and still she's very much patriotic and supportive of, uh, of the government. Uh, well, anyway, I just remember that uh, there was, we never had, there was always deficit of something. We never had um, candy or chocolate or any luxurious or expensive food street. Everything we ate when I was growing up uh, was grown in my grandmother's garden or orchard. The fruits that uh, were grown uh, where I lived in central Russia, that's all we had. Um, there was constantly uh, a lack of clothing. My dad had to pay someone under the table to get clothing, to just obtain regular clothing for me and my sister. And it was such a holiday. It was such a celebration whenever he brought back a pile of dresses for me to try on. And even if they didn't fit, I still wore them because, you know, it happens once a year or twice a year. Um, so it, it was, you know, I, uh, as I said previously, I did not have a bad, miserable childhood. I was happy because that's all I knew. Uh, My parents loved me. My family loved me. All my friends were poor, just like me. So we didn't have anything to compare, um, you know, compare against each other. Uh, There was free education. I did not have to pay for my higher education even after I graduated um, school and went on to study at the university. Uh, There was free medicine for all. Um, There was just, you know, there was no there was no competition. There was just one store that that sold goods, like household goods. There was one store that sold um, grocery provisions, and that is it. You could never choose from anything uh, but one thing. 
mind you, I come from a small, a very small rural area uh, where I was growing up. It was only up to 10,000 people who lived there. I admit that, uh, for instance, in Moscow, the situation was much, which was better. There were more goods and services provided to people who live in Moscow. It was always the capital. I think the larger cities did have the luxury of having more stuff to provide to them as us in the rural areas. So you mentioned that your mom says that they, they're still, they're not communists, they're socialists. Um, and we've talked about that, you and I, before. And I, I am not as versed, obviously, as you are. You, you're, you know it better than anybody about the history of, of Russia and, and the changes that have happened. But even when we have those discussions, I ask you and I press you, because uh, I, I just want to understand the, I, the dynamics there of the population and their, their mindset, the ideology. And you said, yeah, when that stuff happened in the 90s, we, we did turn into, let's say, a democracy. Mm-hmm. But I want to also say air quotes, a democracy, because right. even on its cert- it might be projected as a democracy, but would you still call it that? Is there, do people really have a voice there when it comes to voting and putting in elected officials? Or is it uh, just a front? You know, right in the 90s, uh, after, right after the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, the people did have the power of voice and there were different referendums, uh, those uh, global meetings called uh, from all cities and towns and villages of Russia where they did choose to elect or to proceed that way or to choose this general secretary over that general secretary. Um, however... The more time passed since the 90s, I feel uh, the more of the older elements or the socialism started creeping up. And uh, especially with Putin coming to power in so many terms repeatedly, um, he started abridging everyone's freedoms and taking away uh, the actual voice of the people. Sure, on paper, it still sounds very nice. People in Russia still have a a vote, a right to vote, a right to um, elect to do something. However, um, I don't think that's actually happening in real life. Yeah, it's a facade. I mean, how many people um, in the last election voted for Vladimir Putin? What percentage? Oh, I'm sure it's, it was according to the statistics that people are aware of. It's eighty percent, but I, I'm surprised it's that low. I thought it was in the nineties. Well, they had to leave. Oh, maybe it's, probably it's high eighties. They had to leave some, you know. And and decency. I've I've never seen anything like that in in a democracy where individuals have freedom of thought and speech, and um, there are diverse ideas for running um, the government. So. It's the idea of communism is that the people get to choose. The reality of communism is that there's a very small percentage of the elite at the top, and they never miss a meal. They go out to luxury restaurants. They go out on European vacations. And the rest of the people, they get what's left over. And even with a free education and free health care, you got to say, okay, well, even if you have all the education in the world, what good does it do you if you can't buy a house? You can apply it. If you can't buy a car. Were you able to buy a car when you lived? Because you grew up as a teenager and then a mm-hmm. high schooler and then a college student. Did you ever own a car in, in uh, Russia? Oh, no. That was unheard of. You had to save for several years. Now it's much easier. Now that part of the economy is actually, um, you know, it runs by credit. You can take a loan and you can buy a car, but not when I was growing up. So much easier. Let's compare that to much easier. You now own how many vehicles? 
Well, my husband and I own three vehicles. Okay. And uh, compare the vehicles that you own to the vehicles that you could easily purchase in Russia right now. Is there any comparison? The, the, um, the, the value of the vehicles, the quality of the vehicles, your, your, the ease in obtaining them? No, uh, the vehicles that you are able to obtain, uh, just an average Russian citizen, uh, it's probably would be uh, either vehicles produced in Russia, uh-huh. which are not of uh, very good quality. They do not have the duration of you know of the 2010 Toyota. I don't. I don't uh, see any Russian vehicles over here. Why is that? Because they do not compete with uh, American vehicles, with Japanese vehicles, even with the. Uh, you know the uh, the whatever produced in Europe like Peugeot or Renault anything uh, produced especially the German vehicles uh, the German vehicles are considered luxury Mercedes Audi uh, they cost a lot of money not too many people in Russia even now we, even with loans can afford them so we have a Mercedes van uh, my parents would never be able to afford it okay so the quality in life that you have under this flawed system supposedly of of capitalism. Although it, it seems more um, more selfish on on its surface, it's actually produced more wealth and allowed common people to own property right, yeah. and to thrive and to benefit, benefit and enjoy life. Whereas um, the more moral concept of sharing everything has has reduced that ability to do so. Um, Another Absolutely. concept to me and, and um, purpose of my life, and this is, I, I would think, for life in general, whether you be a human being or an animal or a tree, is to perpetuate your species, right? We want to reproduce. We want our children to live, first of all, and then have successful, happy lives. And uh, in communist regimes, they curtail that. They limit the ability for many years in China, you're all, there was the one-child policy. I think it's still ongoing in China. I don't know. I thought that they lifted it, but we'll have to go to a break and we'll come back. This is Life, Death, and the Law. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and Law. I'm attorney Adam Hanson. I've got my partner, Sean Garner, and we've got Lana, our uh, resident Russian in the firm, and she teaches us Every day of um, some really cool things. And she's a great 
a great uh, individual to get to know. And what I love about you, Lana, is that you're adventurous. You go out on all sorts of different uh, adventures almost every weekend, I would argue, right? Yes, we try. <laughs> you guys, you when I say you guys, you and your husband, you like to go out and, and uh, hike, um, but not just hike. I mean, you do all sorts of fun, adventurous uh, hikes and all over the place, Utah, California. Hawaii. 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 Yeah, that's really cool. In fact, when I came to work, uh, was the last week when I was like, what happened to your car? Because there's a big dent in the side. You're like, oh, you know, (laughs) off-roading. So that's pretty awesome. But uh, she's a great individual, and we love having her with us here at the firm. She gives us a great uh, perspective and dynamic um, to our team. But we've been talking a lot today about the ideologies of capitalism versus communism. We threw out some stats before, and Sean asked you the question, what, you know, when Vladimir Putin was last elected, how by how much of a margin was he elected? And you said probably about 80 percent. And Cody, you you fact checked this. You said it was about 77 percent is what the number was. So we just want to get that out there. Um, but basically 80 percent, like you said. Mm-hmm. So going to Sean's point, I mean, is that really a democracy um, or is something fishy happening? I mean, I don't know the last time that we we um, elected a president in the United States under a theoretical democracy rule. Uh, Democratic Republic ideology um, at eighty percent. I, I don't think that's ever happened. What did Reagan get? I, Reagan popped into my mind, yeah, but right. I don't. Huh. I don't think I don't he got think that eighty percent. Well, no, but I, I just remember that map that was being so red. But yeah, obviously you had California and New York on that. Yeah, probably popular vote. He was probably high fifties. Yeah, wow. probably something like that. And, and I mean, you were always going to be around that fifty to sixty percent. I would guess, just because that's just e- even the most popular. Most most presidents win only by a couple percentage points. Mm-hmm. Even very popular presidents like Barack Obama. Or uh, President Biden. He he had the most votes out of any American president so, in United States uh, history. So Yeah, the most in number, but not the greatest margin. Yeah, but still, I mean, he blew us out of the water, right? Yeah. We're all for Biden, it, aren't we? In comparison, that 84 Reagan excited. was 58%, and the yeah. country was practically red. Yeah, wow. 58%, wow. one of the most popular presidents in recent history. Best years, yeah. I love the conversations you had with Sean about cars and how, really, because you said, what blew me away is that you said something that was really an interesting um, uh, idea to understand because you said, back in Russia, yes, now it's easier to get a car, but it's still kind of difficult. You have to go out on credit most of the time and to get that car. I would argue that's the same here in the United States. Most of us will probably go take a loan to get a car. Um, most of us do that because it's, easy to do it, number one. Number two, we might have a financial reason for doing that and such that maybe they're giving us this loan for zero interest for three years or whatever. I, uh, Sean, I was talking to your brother the other day, and he, he bought something like this recently last year for tax purposes. He, he needed to reduce some stuff on his taxes, so he went out and bought something. His accountant told him to buy it, and um, he's like, I, yeah, I could have paid cash for this, but why when they're giving me free money it was zero percent interest for like five years and he's like okay (laughs) so he took the loan you know it makes it easier for the transaction they're happy he's happy so it's probably in comparison to russian loans a a lot easier here in the united states i argue a little more interest too (laughs) but what made me really um interested was the that you said well here in the united states i have three cars you know not only is it easier to get a car but i've got three of them because of the need like you said you you go out on these adventures and so you need different cars for different adventures 
years, you've got that big Mercedes van, the Sprinter, that can do a lot of the things that uh, you need it to do because you got on these adventures, those camping things. Um, but what was interesting to me was I thought to myself, here in the United States, what's the difference where you have a capitalist system that seems, like Sean was saying, on its face to be very selfish? The idea that I'm in it for me, I'm going to do everything I can to get as much as I can. Um, I, that, to me, is not capitalism at all. I mean, the idea that I'm going to go out and I'm going to hopefully perform and I'm going to compete better than the, my, my competitor, that way I get more, drives me to innovate. It drives me to uh, bring things to the market that you're going to want because if you don't want it, then I'm not going to thrive. So I'm going to change my business model. It causes me, it causes me to grow and it causes me to do better. The more I grow, the more I earn the more prosperous I am, the more I am willing to actually give. So yeah. if I were to go to Russia and I, I would start begging on the street, how much am I going to actually acquire uh, begging on the street in Russia in comparison to downtown Manhattan, where you have a lot of wealth? And even here in Yuma, I'm, I would argue that those that are on the streets that are panhandling, they're probably bringing in quite an income in comparison to those panhandlers in downtown Moscow. Well, are there a lot mm -hmm. of panhandlers in Russia? Um, there, well, not during Soviet Union. That was a, obviously a big no-no. Uh, but now, uh, the most panhandlers actually um, sit by the churches, by the entrance of the churches. So whenever uh, parishioners go in, they uh, they donate money because okay. they feel, you know, they feel bad and they're in the giving spirit already. So, but in Moscow, I would, I have never seen a beggar or a panhandler. That's because in Washington, <laughs> that's actually capitalism. Because in in Washington, you you just recently visited Washington. Yeah. What did you experience there, Adam? Oh, Washington, D.C.? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so it's it's very similar to uh, what I... Um, nothing compares to San Francisco, but there are panhandlers everywhere, and there's rampant drug users. It's just nasty. It's nasty. You don't want to be there. Uh-huh. And, uh, and how does that compare to Moscow? Well, I haven't been... I have not seen... Many panhandlers <laughs> recently in Moscow. I went in January. It was cold, mind you. It was very, very cold. So they mm -hmm. you know, tend to stay. Oh, subways, actually. Uh, now it brings me back. The subway, because they are underground tunnels, uh, panhandlers do tend to go, the, like, to go there. Do they focus on tourists or Russian nationalists? You know, or is there any focus at all with the panhandlers? Because it seems to be that, you know, they, they, they have a strategy when they're, when they're going about their business. It, Many documentaries have been done on panhandling. You can make up to fifty to seventy-five thousand mm -hmm. dollars a year just begging. Oh, wow. And so, w what do you see in comparison to the big cities that you visited around the U.S. and uh, in Russia with the people going and begging? I think they do. Um, I mean, there's a. I don't know. People think that people who live in Moscow they are colder at heart. So people who donate are actually people coming from the rural areas who who then become you know start living permanently in Moscow. Uh, so they target. I want to argue they target those people who they recognize are not born and raised Moscovians, and also they do tend to target the sites that tourists frequent. Okay. So yeah. So it, it it's not. In the communist mentality to give to a beggar for most, I, I would say, Russian-born individuals. Would that be a fair statement? 
It, I don't think the concept of begging even existed in the communist society. It was They were outlawed, uh, just like gypsies. They were uh, just like any uh, nomadic tribes or anyone who did not have a steady income or a steady place to live. There were no homeless people. Mind you, it was, it was illegal. They, they would be rounded up and they would be <laughs> given a place to live and they would be given forcibly a job to hold. It was uh-huh. it was not allowed not to work not to live at one place. Now and and we make a big deal out of slavery as well we should in the United States. It is a very horrible, um, uh, peculiar institution. And what you just mentioned there sounds a lot like slavery when they're when they're compelled to work because they're not allowed to be homeless. So they're given and assigned a, a labor force and then they're compelled to work in that labor force. Oh yes, and not only that. Actually, now I'm thinking about it. If um, they were, if you don't work, if you do not have a steady place to live, uh, those individuals were considered um, mentally unstable and mentally sick. Mm-hmm. They were committed to uh, asylums. Actually, they had to go to, um, sorry, <laughs> to a mental asylum, and they had to stay there till uh, they recovered, and then they were. Released in the general population. When we were in, in, in on on break here, you you talked a little bit about what happened in Russia during World War II. How many combatants were killed compared to how many people were killed as a result of the communist revolution? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, um, and that was already. These these are the figures that I studied at school. So these were the figures recognized by the Russian government. It was in high school after uh, Soviet Union fell already. So uh, we were taught that during the World War II, the victims of the German German Nazis, uh, twenty two million Soviet citizens fell, uh, died, uh, murdered, or killed in action uh, in World War II. By comparison, uh, Stalin and his repressions from the 1930s till the mid-1950s, when he died in 1953, between 19 to 30 million were killed and died and perished by the actions of uh, own Soviet socialistic government, purported by Stalin and his, uh, you know, his supporters. Were there certain... um religious organizations that were sought out or there were certain races or ethnicities that were that were separated how did the communist regime act towards a blending and a melting pot of of different nationalities i don't think it was based necessarily by nationality um, it was um, if you spoke against the regime, uh, that's when a black van would come up to your house in the middle of the night. And first they would take the husband or whoever it was the spouse speaking against. Uh-huh. Uh, and if, if the surviving spouse continued speaking against, then that spouse would be next. And then uh, the children would just disappear. The neighbors were never allowed to ask. The family would never uh, find out what happened to them. Most likely they went to Gulag and died there. Um and I wanted to say that uh, there, w- there are a lot of S- Russian Jews, the Soviet Jews that died uh, in World War II and as part of repressions. So it's really hard. Uh, it's just the thing is, we nev- they never, we never, I guess, um, discriminate or distinguish between if you're a Jew or uh, other nationality. They Christian. were just all Soviet. Yeah, yeah, they were all. But what if they Soviet practiced Russians. their religion? What if they, they insisted on on practicing their religion and attending synagogue or or attending church and, and preaching um, to the masses was that uh, 
Was there a hard crackdown on those people that insisted on practicing religion? Yes, the, yeah, those were considered dissidents as well. But uh, most of the religion uh, was eradicated after the Great October Revolution, 1917, 1918. And I think the epitome of that, or the last stroke in the major, in the masterpiece, was when they blew up um, the temple of Jesus, the Savior, in Moscow. It was this bu- a big gilded temple, beautiful, uh, huge, gigantic tem- temple, and they blew it up. Um, I don't remember the year, but early on in the 1920s, maybe. And what, what was the reasoning for that? Why is it necessary to blow up a temple and to get rid of religion to, if, if, if this it's, uh, system of government is so moral, why do we need to blow up people's religious sanctuaries? Um, well, there was no religion in the in the Soviet Union. There was no religion allowed. Um, I wonder. Well, I guess that took away people's attention from um, the only God in their life, which is the Soviet Socialist Party. <laughs> you could not have two allegiances. Your allegiance had to be to Stalin, Brezhnev, whoever the general secretary was at the point. Yeah, because religion teaches kindness. Um, you know, Soviet Union, uh, the socialism doesn't necessarily equate to kindness. That's all the time that we have for this show. This is Life, Death, and the Law. We'll talk to you next week. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Decent Garner, and Hansen at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. Hey, Yuma, Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.